James chapter 4 is where we are this morning. And this is a, a shower idea this morning, so take it for what it's worth. But this is what I'm going to use to kind of help set up the, what I think is kind of a political filter, a political undertone in James. So how many of you play chess? How many, know, how many of you know anything about chess? What's the goal? Kill the king, right? And in chess, the king has limited range of motion. He can go forward, backwards, side to side, but just one square. Who's the most powerful player on the board? The queen. Why? What's she going to do? She can move any, any direction on the board as, as far as you need. So all attention is usually on the king. You know, you're protecting him, so he's hidden behind some pawns and the rook. Do you know what a rook is? The rook is, you can go all the way across the board, right? The rook is a chariot. So here you have the, this warrior, this chariot, protecting the king, right? So the rook is a defensive piece on the board. The queen, she is, you're, you're always positioning her to take somebody out, right? You want, it, you want your opposition to forget that she's on the board, forget where she is, and you want to distract through other things so you can use her to attack, right? She's always attacking behind the scenes. What does a knight do? What is a knight? It's a horse, right? It's the cavalry. You use the knights to attack and to defend. You use them to defend specific squares that you don't want your opponent to get to. You also use them to attack. What's the other player on the board? This one's weird. The bishop. Why is the bishop part of this political intrigue strategy game? <laughs> so, my chessboard set up here is I have a lens as I've sat in trying to understand James as a whole, not just in the little compartments that he's communicating, but looking for this thread as a whole. It really seems that he's addressing us as the pawns, and he's also addressing Christian leadership as the bishop. This is, a, this is this, the news article that I saw last week. I didn't actually read the article. I just saw the headlines. But for those of you who are aware of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, do you know that Vladimir Putin is a professing Christian? He is a member of the Christian Orthodox, the Russian Christian Orthodox Church. I don't know what his title is, but the head of the Russian Orthodox Church in, in Russia is for Russia's war against Ukraine. Putin has used the Bible, quoting that it is, there is no greater love for a man to lay down his life for his brethren as a, an excuse for Russians to go and lay down their lives for their ethnic Russian brethren in Ukraine who are being persecuted. That's the speech that is being used. So you kind of sit back as, as Vladimir as the king on this chessboard, so to say. Is he using the bishop? Is he sending them out and bringing them back? using it to attack. And this is, this is the, um, we don't have to look all the way at Russia to have this kind of picture. You can look at our own nation, both sides, it doesn't matter, both sides of the political aisle use and manipulate the church as pawns to achieve whatever their political means are, and those may be good political means or they may be wicked political means, right? So as, as I am sitting in James, and we're going to have just a little bit of review, we could really go through this whole thing. It is clear 
that James is talking about the class warfare within the body of Christ. He is very clearly addressing poor believers in Jesus and rich believers in Jesus. And when we get back to it next week, he's going to have a very harsh awakening and, and instruction for those who are rich in the body of Christ. But earlier on, in the very beginning, it's this, my brethren, this is chapter 1, verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete. And then this whole idea, if you lack wisdom, what are we to do? We're to ask the giving God for wisdom. We ask in faith without doubting. Those who doubt are double-minded. This idea of double-mindedness is going to come up today. But the whole idea of patience towards the end, in a, in a few weeks when we get there, James' idea of patience for us as believers is all of us are waiting. We are yearning for the return of Jesus Christ. We want Jesus to come back so that, what? One, I want to see him face to face. I want to be in his perfect image. And that yearning and that desire that I have for myself personally is I want all the darkness gone. I want the mind of God. I want the heart of God. I want the image of God. I can't wait. And then at the same time, there's, this, there's the reality. When Jesus comes, we're told in Revelation 19, there's a sword, it's the word of God that's coming out of his mouth that he's going to strike down the nations. The nations individuals are in rebellion against Jesus as king. And when he comes, there is going to be a judgment and an execution and a, an enforcement of his laws and his righteousness. I mean, these are all the images and the reality that we have for the future. James is very clearly encouraging the believers in regardless of what your life circumstance looks like. And again, I want to, I'm shifting out of personal application a little bit into your specific circumstances and more pulling into the culture that a believer would find themselves in. What trials and tribulations do we endure today culturally being believers in Jesus Christ that our culture kicks against us, where we need to demonstrate patience, where we need to allow, we're de and the patience that we're demonstrating is, Jesus, this is broken, and we need you to come back. I'm willing to wait, Laura. You waited for me. If you have another millennia to wait before you return, I'm okay with that because I trust your perfect will. Does that make sense? So in this, in the patience that we have, Lord, it's give us wisdom. How do you, what do you do with abortion? It's been, it's been legal in this country since 1973. There's a large hope that with the conservative courts that we have, that the cases that are going to work its way up through the Supreme Court, that they're going to reverse Roe versus Wade. How do you talk about that? How do you engage in that? As a congregation, we support Whispering Hope, not just prayerfully and financially, but engaged in their activities where uh, you want individuals, and there are, there are thousands of believers in this nation that stand in that gap to be there in those crisis pregnancies. When somebody is considering killing a life that our government gives them the rights to do, 
to make the other choice, to choose life rather than choosing death. Lincoln told me this morning about some bill in California that I, I know nothing about, so I'm not going to quote anything, but what he told me this morning before, I'm not going to say anything because I haven't done any research, but what he told me is absolutely horrendous. And you can tell it's a political kickback against what other states are doing in regards to restricting the ability to kill a life in this nation. So that's just, that's just one subject matter. What about immigration? What about the redistribution of wealth? What about the social topic, racism? I mean, you, you name that social topic. That We have political spectrums, and those political spectrums, they are very violent with their mouth. And this is, this is the filter that I'm sitting over James in as a whole. So you can correct me if I'm wrong. Because I'm, I'm having this as an open hand, okay? But when I look at the language that James is communicating from the very beginning, have patience, let patience have its work, you need wisdom, so ask God for wisdom and faith. He immediately turns into the contrast between a poor believer and a rich believer. He talks about the temptations that we all find ourselves in, but he's talking in the midst of temptation, the language that he's using is the desires that we have internally. Whether they're sourced by the culture, whether they're sourced by a demon, they're sourced by our flesh. We have these desires, and these desires are at war. But when this di desire conceives, the sin brings forth death. And what is his contrast? The contrast is every good gift, everything that you're asking God for as he is leading you, he is going to give to you perfect and good gifts that only come from above. And he uses this language, you know, God brought us forth by his word of truth. When he spoke humanity and the creation in the first place, let us create man in our image. He spoke us into existence. That power is the same power that spoke us into life, our dead spirits, when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, through the power of his word, through his spoken word, he has pronounced us alive in his son and has given us the spirit as, a, as that deposit of the almighty God that dwells within us, that is leading us and transforming us according to his word of truth. You feel all this? In this, in uh, chapter 1, verse 20, the encouragement after all that he said we need to be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of god we're going to come back to that so therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls be doers of the word it's constant exhortation is do you believe in god that you have been created yes or no and as you sit in that, is Jesus the Son of God in whom he sent? Did Jesus come and teach? Did he teach with authority and with truth? Did he die for your sins on the cross? Was he resurrected again from the grave? Did he ascend for heaven? Are you awaiting his return? Again, as you answer that, yes or no, if you answer yes, then the whole exhortation that James is giving, do it. You lack you don't know, you can't, therefore you ask God, you wait for God, and he will faithfully lead you every single day. I was sitting with God just in gratitude this morning. I can't think of a singular time in my Christian walk where I have asked God for something and he has not provided. 
the wisdom, the direction, the weight, the yes, the no, he has always answered me. Many times it's, it's not in the way I expected. It wasn't the way according to how I had worked out the scenario, but he has always answered me. So as we get, and again, we can, we can sit in the rest of what's already been communicated with this same lens and filter, and I don't want to do that because we don't have enough time. But I want to pick up on verse 1, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 20, says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You got that? Hold on to that, because where we finished a couple of weeks ago, at the end of chapter 3, says the fruit of righteousness. So God's righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, literally by those who do peace. So James's th that last sentence is at the end of him encouraging for there to be few teachers in our midst. Because the teachers of the day, the teachers that James is interacting with, he is dealing with teachers that are violent. They are believers in Jesus, and they are violent with their mouths, and they are violent with their hands against their political opposition. And you can, you can sit in James's context. Again, I've brought up multiple times, he was executed in 62 AD by the religious leadership in Jerusalem for his positions. The rebellion of, of the Jews against Rome, it, the beginning of that major war began in 66, and it ended in 70 with the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the Jerusalem, and the, the decimation of the people, whether they were Jews or whether they were Christians. Both were in this political violence of the day. And again, I'm, I'm trying to, again, I don't want to... I don't want to say that this is all that James is communicating, but I'm trying to sit with James in his context, in relationship with the Holy Spirit that is dwelling within him. We are told through church history that this was a prayerful man. They, they called him James the Camel Knees because his knees were so messed up. He spent so much time on his knees in prayer. Like these are the, these are the, the narratives that we have about church, from church history about James. So he's sitting in his culture and he's communicating to his culture at his time and clearly the Lord is communicating to all believers these same principles. So, being cautious with who's going to teach and the damage that we can do with our mouths, talking about what true wisdom is, wisdom that's from above, it is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, it's full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Does that filter lay over any of the political conversations in our nation? Yes or no? So that's kind of where I'm coming at in this. Most of the political conversations that we have, they're extremely rude, arrogant, passionate. We can't be without passion. So, Lord, I need wisdom. How do you want me, how do you want us to stand in each one of these subject matters in our culture? Lord, how do I communicate your truth, your son, your salvation, your eternal life to somebody who stands in opposition to that? Well, in truth, without fear, in courage, and in boldness, but in love, in gentleness, 
knowing not to cast my pearls, your pearls, before swine, before the heart that's not going to listen. Seeking gentleness, seeking gentleness, knowing that my wrath, my anger, my righteous anger at this circumstance will not produce your righteousness in this human being and in this culture because what it takes is Jesus Christ. It requires faith in your son to produce the righteousness of God. So righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. James is encouraged. It's sown in peace. So you can tell, again, just, just as a layer, James is not dealing with congregations that are struggling with moral sins. Right? He's dealing with congregations that are they're divisive based upon cultural issues, whether it's because they're poor, they're rich, or because they sit on different pro- political spectrums. Um, all of that is going to be true. So, very long-winded introduction for James's question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires? For pleasure, that war in your members, you lust, and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasure. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives great grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, this is where James gets the reputation for being kind of a kick to the teeth or a kick to the gut. Again, you you have to sit with his heart. Does James love who he's communicating to? Yep. Does he love his brother and his Lord and his Savior, Jesus the Christ? Absolutely. Does he love his God? Yes. Does he love his Jewish countrymen? Absolutely. So you have to sit with what's reality in his heart and what the Lord is doing and what the Lord has communicated through his teachings and through his acts and what he is directing us to do. And he's beginning this with, again, here's this statement with all the words that come out of our mouth, the, the, the language that our tongue is capable of speaking into the ears of others and the fires that can start, the fires for sin and the fires for the Holy Spirit. Amen? So... The fruit of righteousness, it's sown in peace. And now he's asking this rhetorical question, where, where, does, where, do, where do your conflicts come from? Now, we can apply this to your personal life, just in your internal wars and conflicts. So all the language that James is using is similar to the language that Paul's using. 
He uses war. He uses imagery of struggle and battle that is using military language, and at the same time using that emotional struggle and fight that we have with ourselves and with the relationships around us every single day. Do you have a conflict and a struggle and a war and a strife, a wrestling that you are waging right now with yourself, with this world culturally? whether it's in politics or what you feel that the culture is telling the body of Christ to do. I mean, there are things for us to kick against, for sure. What's your struggle? What's your conflict? What's your war? Now, James asked this question, where does this war come from? And it's, again, this is military language, this war, this battle, this struggle, this fight. Where does it come from? Do they not come from your hedonistic desires? This word for pleasure is where we get our word for hedonism, and it has everything to do with our selfish, ambitious produce, uh, pursuits of satisfying what we want satisfied. Now again, James is not focused on like the issues of the flesh. He's not talking about sexual perversions. He's not talking about food and wealth and all these other kinds of things. It seems like he's talking about this, this verbal whether it's political or not, I mean, this is, again, this is the lens that I'm sitting in it right now. It seems like that that's the heart that he's addressing. Why are there divisions in the body of Christ? Why are you warring with one another? Where do these conflicts come from? Are you not submitting yourself to God and you were just fighting for your own pleasures and your own mind and your own perspective on what you think is right? Now, remember, James is talking to believers, and again, he uses this... This is, this is where it, it keeps pulling me back into this language, this idea of you lust and you do not have, but you murder and you covet. He keeps saying that the people in the church have committed murder. I just, that kind of... Now, is he talking about Jesus' teaching where when Jesus is, you know, the word of God says, you've heard, and we're going to go spend a little bit of time at the end in the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus says, you've heard that it said you should not commit murder. But if you are judging your brother, if you're angry at, well, if you're angry at your brother, you are in danger of the judgment. This, this whole idea that murder starts in the heart. It starts with anger. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, we perform actions and behaviors in life. So is James only referring to the condition of the heart? Or is he also talking about the real possibility that Christians are killing other human beings and they feel justified in doing so i lean towards that and again the the lens that i have over this right now is just the current political context you have a representative of jesus christ as the head of the russian orthodox church whatever that means he's supposed to represent god to the people yes are we all in agreement there he is in support of russia sending in troops to kill ukrainians And we would ask the question, where does that heart come from? Where does that desire for violence and murder come from? That is not of God. Do you feel those words? <sighs> All right. God help us with our mouth. Therefore, he has to help us with our heart. Therefore... We need to look to Jesus for everything. You murder and you covet. You cannot attain. You have no power to, to, to reach. 
to bring in, to obtain. You fight and you war, but you don't have because you don't ask, right? It's, and the idea is, is that you're not spending time in urgent prayer, urgent conversation with God. God, I don't know and I don't understand, or I do know and I do understand, and we need your help. But you don't have because you don't ask, or what you're asking, you're asking because you're asking in a wrong way, and we're going to go get into how Jesus tells us to pray at the very end of day. But a lot of the things that we ask God for, it's to consume it on our own pleasures, our own desires, our own wants, our own understanding of what the solution to the world's problems are. If we would only make abortion illegal in this country, then our country would turn back to God and righteousness, and then God would bless us. Is that true? I am. I'm, I'm all for making abortion illegal. It's wicked. It's wrong. But I'm all for standing in the gap right now. If people, have, if a, if an individual has the choice to kill a child in the womb, and I'm sitting here watching Kate worship God with her right hand on her belly, talking about that we're in the hand of God. What, what an image of, I love pregnant women in their bellies because they're always holding on to it. There's a protection there. There's a, there's a, there's a connection in a relationship there. And that image is, it's of God to me. His hand is on me and covering me and cherishing me and loving me. It's, it's such a powerful image. Thanks for that image, Kate. Beautiful. Adulterers and adulteresses. What's an adulteress? A woman steps outside of the marriage. In the Old Testament, again, James is a good Jewish boy. And he has the Old Testament as his history and his context. And when you call somebody an adulteress, and again, adulterers is probably not in the original text. It's, it's all in the family. When you call somebody an adulteress, Biblically, he is, he is telling these individuals, you have stepped outside of your marriage covenant with your creator. Because again, in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as the husband, Israel is portrayed as the wife. He said in the New Testament, Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. Calling the church an adulteress, it is, it's, it is hyperbolic language, it's extreme language to stop people in their tracks. What? What did you just call me? Why? I, I haven't stepped outside of my relationship with God. I am fighting for God. What they are doing is wrong and it's evil. They should die. And James is saying, adulteress, it's not the heart of your Savior. That wisdom is earthly and it's natural and it's demonic. It is not pure. It is not peaceable. It is not willing to yield. It is with partiality, not without partiality. That's hypocritical because you deserve to die. And Jesus died for you. In that position, in belief, in faith, who are we to ever sit as judge? And he's going to get into this next week. Don't judge your brothers and your sisters. That is not your job. It's God's. You know what your job is for the body of Christ? Love. Encourage. Rebuke in love. 
and in gentleness and passion. Redirect. Always bring the conversation back to Jesus. You, 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 these words are coming out of your mouth. Do those words come out of Jesus' mouth? Is that how he'd say it? Show me. Like, let, let's discuss. And this is why we're going to get back to this topic with the men's breakfast. Like, let's dialogue about these things. Let's dialogue how we talk about the issues in our culture that we think are fight-worthy. And there are issues that are fight-worthy. But there are, there are issues that, you know, that are, you're willing to die for, Jesus and Jesus alone. And there are side issues where we need to be willing to yield and sow these conversations in peace. And God, we are begging God for wisdom in every single one of these conversations. And James is just bringing about, just again, these different ideas. Don't you know? That friendship and it's love. It's, it's Philadelphia type love. Brotherly love. Don't you know that friendship with the world, now this is not with just an unbeliever, but the idea is the world's system. Don't you know that the government, if you want to make yourself a friend of any government in this world, you are appointing yourself in opposition to your creator. When we go back into Samuel, again, I brought this up multiple times already, but we're going to keep sitting in this idea. Samuel's beginning with this idea of this demand. I want a man as my king. I don't want God as my king. And as we move into faith in Jesus Christ, and we're asking for his kingdom, I don't want a man as my king. I don't look to a single man or a single woman as my king, my sovereign authority. God is my authority. Now, as God is my authority, as Jesus my authority, what does he tell me to do with human governments? To submit myself to them. To pray for the king. To pray for leadership. I pray, we were praying this this morning, may God send Josephs and Daniels, men and women, into not just the United States government, which they are already there, but into the Russian government. Into the Saudi Arabian government. Into the Israeli government. And to every single government structure there is, may God lift up his children into those positions to be salt and light as they proclaim the gospel in the political sphere. Amen? Be praying for those things. But don't you know that friendship with these world systems, you are placing yourself in a hostile opposition against God because whoever wants to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And this whole, this whole sentence here, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So, the question is, spirit in my text is capitalized. So that means the Holy Spirit who dwells in me through faith in Jesus Christ yearns for me jealously. Has a passion. Has a desire for me. Jealously. And again, when you deal with holy jealousy, God owns me, and he cares about me, and he cares about any influence that is seeking to come into my life that is going to hurt me. He is my protector. His right hand is over me. He is brooding over me as a mother hen does over her chicks, which I have this imagery going on in our chicken coop right now with 
a mom brooding over the baby chicks. It's such a powerful imagery of God. You want to see the glory of God? You go look at his creation, and his glory is declared all over the place. But here, his spirit is yearning for me, for me to image him, for God's mind and his heart to be my mind and my heart, for him to be... Uh, to have dominion over my language and over my actions. At the same time, spirit may be lowercase. This may be your spirit yearns in you jealously. What's your spirit yearning for? What's your desire? What's your craving? The Old Testament uses this language a lot in regards to, like, thirst. Go place yourself in a desert environment where water is limited and you have these, this poetry of the Old Testament like a deer pants for water. So my soul yearns for God. You feel it? Now, I wish I could stay in this position all the time, but I don't. I end up yearning for my own yearnings, my own cravings, my own desires, my own opinions. And it's this constant submission of coming back to the Lord. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Change this heart. Change the way I think. Change the way I speak. Change the way I act. Submitting myself to you, Lord, because I yearn for your will and your will alone. This whole idea of looking at, all right, so if James is sitting with political divisions, class divisions in the body of Christ, He's got this solid contrast between, you know, why we say what we say in our context, why we're passionate about what we're passionate about in our context, and the contrast that stands out, even the yearning of your spirit or the yearning of the spirit of God in you, the but, the great big but in the sentence, God gives great grace. I don't know if any of you, you know, just bring it back to abortion. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced an abortion, that this is a decision that you made. You've walked along somebody who has sat inside of that kind of life experience and that kind of choice. God gives great grace to the broken and contrite soul that is looking for forgiveness and cleansing in the midst of that guilt and that pain. I did that, Lord. What does that person need? Do they need you with your finger in your chest? In your anger? In your passion? Or do they need to hear about the great grace of God that if they turn to God, he is there with open arms to clean to restore. Yes, there's consequences. He will walk with every single human soul the exact way that they need. Anything that you need to be cleansed from. Your language, your actions, your thoughts, your heart, whether they're the old man and the old woman, things of the past that you still may have shame over, whereas things that you're wrestling with today, there is God with his great grace. And who does he give his grace to? The proud? I got this life all figured out. You know, get, in, get back to the chess game. Who, who's it all about? It's all about the king. It's all protecting that one person. And so often that can be our life. We're the king. We're on the throne. 
I'm sovereign, my life is about me, everybody else is a pawn and a tool to get what I want. That's the proud. That's the arrogant. That's the self-righteous. That's the selfish, ambitious heart that is only pursuing whatever you think is going to bring pleasure into you, that you think that you're going to be satiated with. And the reality is, is only God is the satisfaction for the desires that we have. Who does God give great grace to? The humble. So then it's this therefore statement. What are we supposed to do? Come under your creator. Make the choice. Submit your entire self to God. Your opinions, your understandings, your experiences, you make the choice. I, I make the choice to submit to God. And the powerful thing about the Greek is this is a passive word. You make the choice to submit, and guess what God does? God's going to work out that humility in you. He's going to work out his heart, his mind. He is in control. He is sovereign. You submit yourself to him, and he is in active control as he leads you. When it comes to resisting the devil, this is an active verb in the Greek. We are to actively stand in opposition to all of the devil's schemes and his activities in our lives. Now don't forget, remember when Peter's trying to stand in Jesus' way of Jesus going to the cross? What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Your mind, your heart, the words that are coming out of your mouth. Those things, you are, you are focused on the things of man, not on the things of God. Get behind me. And how often we can have attitudes that express being in opposition to God. And this is the exhortation. Therefore, submit yourself to God, to his truth, to his mind, in all areas of your life, and actively oppose Anything that has come, whether it's your own heart, whether it's somebody in your household, whether it's your culture, we are to actively resist, resist the schemes and the plans and the activities of the devil in our life and in our culture. Y'all feel this? And what does it say? When you stand against the devil, what does he do? Gets behind you. He flees. Again, this isn't just some theo theology, you know, willy-nilly, magical Christian. What, I mean, it's not out there in this realm. This is like real in our life. When you actively say no to the devil, and you submit your mind and your heart to God, and you look to God, I am so angry with this, and I want to lash out, but I'm looking and I'm asking you for your wisdom right now. That is actively submitting yourself to God and at the same time it is act actively opposing and resisting the devil in your life. And what does he go on to say? So you submit to God, resist the, resist the devil, draw near to God, and he'll draw to you, near to you. How do you approach God? This is what the word draw near to means. We are told that we approach God's throne of grace through who? Through Jesus, through his son and his son alone. And we run boldly with courage with our mouths 
whether you are positionally on your knees, you're positionally on your forehead, you're positionally standing up, you are just seated with your God with a cup of coffee of your hand and you're having a conversation with him. Boldly draw near to him. And again, this gets back to that promise. He will always respond to your approach with approaching you. Sit with the prodigal son. What does the father do in that parable? Does he just sit back and wait for the prodigal son to return after he's all living in his lasciviousness and wasted his his father's inheritance and all that does the dad just wait when he sees his son coming what does he do this is culturally wrong too he gets up and he runs and this is the language that's being expressed to us when you choose to turn to god he will run to you whatever you need he will provide, and he's right there for that transformation, for that provision, for the wisdom, for the understanding, whatever you need, there he is. And this is, uh, we're going to, when we get back into the Old Testament and Samuel, we start dealing with Psalms, we're going to deal heavily with poetry, and uh, here you see this idea of parallelism. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you're double-minded. And here's the parallelism. Cleanse and purify are related. Hands and hearts are related. Sinners and double-minded are related. They're parallel to one another. So listen to his language. Cleanse, purify. Your hands, are. The, this is what you've done. Your hearts, this is the seat of your emotions and what you think. Cleanse and purify your hands and your hearts you sinners and you double-minded. What did he talk about in the very beginning when we are to go and ask God boldly in faith? Don't ask in hesitation and doubt. Because that individual, when you go to God with that kind of attitude, you're a double-minded individual. You're playing over here and you're playing over there at the same time. No, that ought not to be. And this is the language that he's getting to. So he's using hyperbolic, extreme language to capture our attention. Like, God, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I don't want to be double-minded anymore. Well, guess what, child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a sinner anymore. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west from your soul. But we're at war. We're at conflict. We still have this struggle within. We have this struggle in relationships. We have this struggle with our culture. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against these demons and princes and principalities. Therefore, stand in the power of God. Like we have all of this language. Lament and mourn and weep. And this, is this, this is the idea of just, um, again, you got to sit in the Jewish culture of what mourning looks like. You are, you are rending, you are tearing your garment. You are throwing dust and ashes on your head. You are weeping and wailing. This is, and this is all public demonstration of your deep sorrow in regards to your own sin, your actions, your words, your heart, your culpability in these things. 
This is the attention that he's trying to get to those who are standing in opposition against Jesus in the body of Christ with their teachings, with their mouths. He is telling them, you adulteresses, weep and mourn and wail for the condition of your soul because it is not the image of your Savior. Get right. Cleanse yourself purify yourself which you yourself you can't do it how do we do it submit to god draw near to him and there he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom again same language humble yourselves in the sight of the lord humility he will lift you up he will lead you he will set you on the right path. Turn to, really quick, Matthew chapter 5. Um, all of this final instruction is really to give you related ideas out of the teaching and the heart and the mouth of our Savior so that as you sit with what James is talking about, you can see how his brother and his Savior influenced his language. And at the same time, we're going to end in the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. But the whole idea of that God gives grace to the humble, that we are to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Humility. So he goes down through these list of characteristics. Blessed are, blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who mourn. Didn't James just tell us to, to weep and to mourn and to wail? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. James used that language. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who yearn for righteousness in your life and in this world. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure and heart, wisdom that comes from above is pure. Those who yearn to see Jesus face to face, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, that those who have that hope in themselves purify themselves. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. As those who were murdering and coveting in the body that James is dealing with. Verse 21, you have heard there was said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. How Jesus is dealing with the source of our own hearts, our own anger, our own wrath that will not bring about the righteousness of God. Jump down to verse 43. How about you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Yeah, I want to love my neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah, I'm good with that. What does Jesus tell us to do? Are you supposed to hate Vladimir Putin? Are you supposed to hate your political opponent? Are you supposed to hate the human being that is fighting for the right of other human beings to kill innocent life in the womb right now? Are you supposed to hate that person? Do you want to? 
I say to you, this is our Savior, our Lord, our Sovereign, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And here we'll end chapter 6, verse 9. In this manner, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, may your name be holy and high and exalted. May it be separate. May it be singular, Lord. You are the God of gods. You are the Lord of lords. You are the King of kings. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be the name of your Son, Jesus. Your kingdom come. God, how we need your kingdom. We yearn for you to come. We yearn for you to fix the brokenness that we see in humanity. We yearn for you, Lord, to strip the authority of these earthly governments that kill and steal and destroy in the name of Satan. Jesus, may you come quickly. Your will be done, Father. Let us know what your will is, what your mind is, what your heart is. What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? Submit myself to you, Lord. Transform my will to be your will. Because, Lord, we know about your heavenly kingdom and what you have told us. And just as your will is done in heaven, we want your will to be done, not just in our lives, but on this entire earth. Give us today our daily bread. Lord, whether that be our food or whether it be your word, give us your bread today. Forgive us. Forgive me of the debts that I put in my ledger. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, in the name of your Son. Forgive me of all that causes me shame and guilt and remorse and the sacrifice of your Son on that cross. And Lord, just as you have forgiven me, give me the power to forgive those who are in debt to me. Lord, we trust you not to lead us into temptation. You do not tempt us with evil. Oh, but there's my heart and there's the devil and there's this world every day, Lord, trying to lure me away. But I know and I trust as I follow you, you will not lead me into temptation. Deliver us, Lord, from the evil one in our own lives how he's worked within the body of Christ in our country and in this world. Lord, how we see his imprint all over the culture. Deliver us from his schemes, Lord. Deliver us from his designs. Bring about your righteousness. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed in every corner. Why? 
Yours is the kingdom. You and you alone are the sovereign king. You, you alone have all power. And for you and you alone is all glory forever. Amen.